arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your homes. Well, good evening, everybody. Tonight, Jake and Soaring Bird battle Mother Nature in Death Valley, while the Silver Bars are being transported by Rheingold and company to another location. Jake has been sent on a fool's errand south to Death Valley. But what's beginning in the hills northeast of Brinson is the start of lots of action, confrontation, and risky behavior. When so much wealth is involved, it's strange how men and women seem to assume an aberrant level of behavior. On another note, I've been in Death Valley, mostly in the spring. There's a devastating silence that pervades the long alluvial stretches with brilliant sunbeams on the mineral-laden rocks. Landscapes subtly change, but human nature in all its forms remains constant, even in 1882. Here is Episode 3 of When You're Dead, You're Dead. Chapter 10 Death Valley, California, June 19, 1882, 6.21 a.m. In the morning, hazy gray clouds moved in from the west. Jake smoked more tobacco after munching a smoked beef stick and a hard roll. Nearby, sunset-scattered yellow rays broke through the broken gray clouds above the lofty blue Panamint Mountains. The loose rocks along the nearby slope formed shadows on the dirt. The potent tobacco filled his lungs as he sat, knees propped up to his chest on a wool, army-issued blanket. With the wagons not far ahead, he doubted whether he could personally apprehend Estrada, but reporting the Mexicans' location would alert the army of the Pinkertons to the silver, and they could telegraph the information. As he stared into the sporadic mist, the stars twinkled between breaks in the silver clouds chugging like puffy train cars across the desert. Manawa grazed in the gray light only a few feet from his bedroll. As he dragged his saddle closer to his own blanket, Jake still had a feeling someone lurked behind him in the hills. Then he brought a small metal pot to Manawa and let him drink. The horse's ears would occasionally flutter as he looked back along the trail. He rubbed the horse's snout and then stuffed the pot back in the saddlebag. Keep your eyes open. He lifted the Remington out of its saddle holder and removed a second blanket from his pack. The desert's cool air descended over him, but as he lay back, thunder rumbled to the south. His head rested against the saddle leather and he gently tucked the tobacco as he pulled the flannel blanket over his chest. The stars blinked between the cloud openings and his eyes hung heavy. He ground the cigarette into the soil, but the lingering fire smoke hung over him. His thoughts floated back to Pam Grayson, and he fell asleep thinking about her in the coal train. Rain drizzle woke him in the morning. He ate quickly and broke camp. Menawa's hoofs dug into the moistened sand, and he dodged the rock talus spread over the crushed brown slope. More red soil, darkened with the rain, appeared sporadically along the incline and the wagon tracks all morning. He rolled off the saddle and quickly bent down next to Menawa holding the reins as he smudged the soil between his fingertips. When Soaring Bird first saw the mixture yesterday, he had not thought much of it. 
More tapering piles appeared along the tracks up the next slope. Jake now doubted whether the wagons contained silver at all. At the top, within a foggy spray, a water pool sunk between the smooth tan boulders. As the ghostly inclines and weighted ridges spread before him, he twisted in the saddle. Along the line separating the dense sky from the land, he was sure he saw a rider, but the fog descended and shifted. The wide stretches of land, especially in the fog, could convince a man he saw something that wasn't there. He yanked out his rifle and stepped onto the rocks. He filled the canteens, took off his shirt, and dunked his head in the cold water. After scanning the east ridge, he pushed his hair back. He rubbed his eyes and grabbed his shirt. As Menawa nibbled on grass clumps, he removed his field glasses and climbed up the rocks. Under the bulging silver clouds to the west, an ash and cinder field surrounded a small volcanic crater within the ashen slope. The Shoshone called it Yubahibi because it looked like a basket. The wagon tracks led up to the crushed cylinder fan, yet he saw no sign of the wagons. He wiped the glasses and then pushed his arm through one of the shirt sleeves. Several brown smudges highlighted the shirt wrinkles. He raised the back of his shirt to his nose. Damn creosote, just like out at Dunbar's ranch. He conjured up an image of Pam's dusty boots next to his clothes strewn on the hotel rug. His stomach sank. He had no regrets about spending the night with her, except he may have slept with Tom Dunbar's killer. Sheets of rain, furrowing in the wind, filled the bleak northern horizon back toward Nevada. He draped his shirt over his moistened skin. With the rain now bouncing off the rocks, he untied a lower saddle wrap and took out his slicker. Again, he checked the land behind him as he buttoned his shirt. He grasped the glasses and slid down the rocks. The sight of the Dunbar children huddled against their mother's skirt remained fixed in his head as he donned his vest and lowered the slicker over his head. He secured his hat and climbed back on Menowa. He brought the horse quickly between the rocks. The wagon trail cut into the crater's ash incline. Even with a week's worth of provisions stuffed in his saddlebags, he knew that eventually returning to Brinson meant arresting Pam Grayson. He stroked his grisly chin as rain dripped off his rounded hat. Then he wiped his mustache as he started down the crater's elongated cinder slope and laid the butt of the Remington against his slicker across his legs. Shadows in the storm made him think someone else was out here with him. The full view of the volcanic rim widened as he turned and pulled back the reins. A muslin sandbag trail led to five wagons all flipped over along the eroded crater walls. Son of a bitch. You getting old, Jake, or just plain stupid? Or maybe both. A silhouetted figure in the mist prompted him to aim his Remington. Someone, a man in a brown slicker draped over a deep blue army uniform and a yellow bandana, approached. Lieutenant Dooley's white riding gloves gripped his rifle. Jake pointed his own rifle. Don't try anything, Dooley! Jake figured he had caught Dooley off guard. Dooley slowly lowered the rifle. Jake massaged his finger on the rifle trigger and kept the gun trained on Dooley. The army lieutenant emerged from the rocks and started up the cinders. His dark horse was fully loaded with two extra Colt six-shooters and a side pouch, as well as two rolling block rifles and a new Winchester Jake did not recognize.
Marshal, I thought you was Estrada. I know when a man's been stalking me, brother. That's a bold assumption. I only stalk criminals when I was with the Rangers. You don't mind if I ask what the hell you're doing down here? And who the hell are you? You and Rheingold both. He had that same arrogant smile. Doing the same thing you are. Tracing them wagons out of the canyon. You didn't believe what they were saying about Estrada? Yeah, well, you look down this crater and you tell me if Estrada isn't a figment of someone's imagination. What do you mean? Jake kept his eyes on the lieutenant's hands and pointed down the crater gullies to the abandoned wagons below. Look, goddammit! I'd say someone has played us for fools. Jake stared at the arsenal of rifles and ammunition. You expecting trouble, Dooley? Why, aren't you? Yeah, but I don't know who from. Again, Dooley grinned. Something funny? Army wants me to find the truth. Is that right? Asked Jake, moving Menowar away from the rim, but he kept his rifle aimed at Dooley. I'm heading back to Brinson right now. Your engineer and his pal are liars. Rheingold is a liar. He's setting you down here. Who is he? He ain't no railroad man. I came on my own. Rheingold works for the Overland. Well, I sure as hell don't believe it. Jake raised the rifle. Where's the silver, Dooley? Dooley's hands moved toward his Winchester. This here's a new issue. Larger than the old 66, longer range. You take every one of them rifles, brother, and you put them on the ground right now. You don't think I, I had something to do with that silver, do you, Marshal? Jake brought Menowar closer through the steady rain. He looked into Dooley's washed-out blue eyes. I think you've been following me since yesterday afternoon. You're too suspicious. Shut up. Get the guns down or I'll shoot you where you sit. Dooley dropped the Winchester to the cinder floor. He threw the pistols down. Jake slid off the saddle, keeping the rifle pointed at the soldier as he picked up the weapons. If I didn't see you behind the rocks, I'd be dead right now. Right, Lieutenant? I tell you, you and me, we have the same purpose. Get that silver. Rheingold planned this whole thing, didn't he? Dooley pressed his lips. My orders come from the army. Bullshit. You're going to tell me where that silver is. I can't tell you what I don't know. I want to find that silver just like you do. There's a Pinkerton coming. Everyone says there's a Pinkerton coming, but he sure as hell is taking his sweet-ass time. You're all liars. Get down. The rain fell harder now as Jake raised his rifle again. Dooley kept his hands in the air as he dismounted. Jake lunged forward and pressed the muzzle against Dooley's neck. Raindrops slowly dribbled from the soldier's blue cap and down his cheek. I'm giving you one last chance, Lieutenant. You tell me where that silver is and who's involved, or I'll shoot you dead right now. Dooley's eyes darted. His cockiness transformed suddenly into fear. He squinted and nodded once. Yeah, Rheingold planned it. Planned it down south. He planned it. Then we all came on the stage here to Eureka and then back to Brinson. Why ain't I surprised, the bastard? What did he do with the silver? Moved it into caves in Sorroyo. In Sorroyo? Well, damn, right under my nose. Dooley squinted as if he were in deep thought. You ain't gonna kill me because you need to know where the silver is.
You're just going to have to weigh that in your mind, Lieutenant. Bring your horse around. We're heading back to Brinson. The lieutenant grabbed his horse reins. He taunted Jake as he walked the animal along the cinder rim. Jake would not hesitate to kill him. He gritted his teeth through the rain as they moved back toward the murky Grapevine Mountains. How did you become a marshal anyway? Jake tightly held his rifle. Maybe he would shoot Dooley in the ass. I heard you got lucky. Somebody shot Tuckerman. Where'd you get that uniform? You ain't no army man. Sure I am, he said, holding the reins and following his horse up the muddy, rock-strewn slope. The Iron Brigade. What battles? You tell me what battles the Iron Brigade was in. Dooley's smile developed into a full-bellied laugh as he trudged forward. I don't know where the silver's at. Jake spun off Menowa, and his rifle thrust out as if he were charging into battle. He swung the butt against the soldier's head. Dooley's knees buckled, but he kept grinning as he hit the mud. Jake ripped out his bowie knife and sliced off an end from Dooley's lariat. Quickly, he wound the heavy hemp around Dooley's wrist and tied a timber hitch he had learned working the range in Texas. He yanked Dooley up by the scruff of his neck and secured the line with his right hand. Then he mounted Menowa. What am I, some kind of animal, Marshal? You keep your mouth shut, or I'll tie that bandana through your damn teeth. You ain't going to find the silver McBride with, without my help. Get moving. Like little rivulets, the rain traced the soldier's face. He smiled as he passed. Jake's cheek twitched. Maybe the lieutenant would divulge the silver's location or he could say nothing. He had trailed Jake since Brinson and only made his appearance once Jake found the sandbag wagons. As the afternoon darkened and the rain pellets pinged his face, he had the urge to shoot Dooley. When you're dead, you're dead. Under a jutting rock ledge, Jake finished a hard roll and took a swig of canteen water. Earlier, Dooley sang and insulted him as they rode through the rain and made camp late in the afternoon near Nevada. Rainwater, like the falls he remembered on the Green River, cascaded over the rocks. Jake gripped his Remington. Dooley pushed against the ledge, his arms bound and rope looped along the dirt. Oh, you see, little doggies, you're going to lay down. Jake grabbed another bandana from his saddlebag. The silver is there, most anywhere. I'm ready to put this around your mouth, Dooley. I ought to shoot you right now, brother, said Jake, leaning toward the outside. He cupped his hand and then whistled for Menowa. Menowa! The horse neared the cave, and Dooley looked up. Why do you call him Menowa? Don't try and distract me. You got me wrong, Marshal. Jake lifted his hand toward the horse. He was an Apache Mustang. Wild. I broke him. Why the name? asked the lieutenant. Menowa was a Seminole in General Jackson's time. Was against the army, but he came around. He even wore an army uniform. Jake studied Dooley's faded blue uniform and worn cap as Menowar finished the grain. You ain't no soldier, but I seen you before. In Texas. You ain't never seen me. He leaned his head against the damp rocks, and the refrain started again. The silver is there, most anywhere. You know a lot of mining songs, Dooley, yet you tell me you was in the war. 
said Jake, taking another fistful of grain from the bag. I was the backbone of the Iron Brigade. Where'd you meet Rheingold? In the mines? You make too many conclusions, Marshal. Maybe. You're going to spend the rest of your life at Fort Leavenworth. You know that, don't you? Lesson you want to tell me where they brought the silver. I ain't done nothing. Dooley pointed his finger at Jake. Jake raised the rifle barrel. Nobody can prove nothing. Rheingold, tell you to kill me? I don't take orders from Rheingold. <laughs> You're his boy. He says jump and you jump. He'll throw a few silver bars at you, but he wouldn't put himself at risk, Dooley. He'll kill you. He ain't gonna want witnesses. Where's the silver? Dooley turned and knelt as if he were praying near the water flowing over the outside ledge. What's in it for me? Maybe I'll just turn my back and let you go. You tell me where they took that silver. Dooley stared through the cascading rain. He thought for several minutes before finally turning back to Jake. Silver's not in Sororo. Where is it? asked Jake, thrusting out his rifle. I can kill you out here and nobody's going to know it, brother. Who's Rheingold and where is he going? Dooley grinned and shook his head. If it weren't raining, I would have got a clear shot at you back at the crater. Who is he? Well, his name's... Jake cocked the rifle. Don't matter to me if I kill you. Matter of fact, killing you would be like plugging rats on the boardwalk, brother. Dooley stroked his bristly chin. Then he pursed his lips and nodded. I don't have to tell you nothing, old McBride. Jake pulled the trigger and shot him in the thigh. As Dooley grabbed his leg and wailed, Jake fired again, brushing his hand. What was his real name, Lieutenant? asked Jake, raising his gun. Rheingold! Bullshit, and he don't work for the Overland. You were sent out here to kill me, you bastard. Hard to kill you with no weapons, Marshal. Come on. Where's the silver? Dooley's voice sounded scared. John Rheingold! Jake winced and aimed the gun barrel at him as the soldier stepped forward. Dooley bowed his head but abruptly swung his arms up. He threw sand and mud into Jake's eyes. Then he dragged something across the dirt. Jake fired the rifle, but his eyes burned in the blurry glare. He gripped his rifle with his left hand as he doused his eyes with canteen water. A salty mix formed in the corners of his mouth. He blinked and then opened his eyes, but he did not see Dooley. Rain flailed against his hat brim as he staggered from the opening. Damn you! Damn you! Don't be a fool, Dooley! The dim gray twilight edges blended into the desert mist. Thunder cracked and jagged lightning danced over the distant dark hills. He fanned the gun, but Dooley was hiding or gone. A bullet hit the rocks behind him, followed by a rifle crack echoing through the rocks. Jake dove onto the soggy ground. An orange flash ignited in the fog and another bullet whizzed over his head. He fired the Remington at the flash. More shots followed. Minawa splattered the mud and galloped into the night. He aimed over the rock and fired. Lightning flashed over the long, rock-strewn slope, silhouetting the folded grapevine mountains and clouds above. It might take a week through the blazing sun to get back to Brinson without Menawa. Lightning daggers zippered through the packed clouds, temporarily illuminating the ledge and the rocks. The valley shook with deep thunder. Water dripped off Jake's hat brim and rain pelted his shirt, but his thoughts centered on Rheingold. Now he remembered. 
Texas is where he saw Rheingold shoot his weapons all over the town square. He was arrested and Jake never saw him again until he arrived on the stage. He leaned against the rocks above the lower ledges. His eyes hung heavy and drifted out of a fatigue-induced sleep. He could have stayed in the canyon instead of following the wagon track south. The mounds of red sand spilling onto the ground should have alerted him. When you're dead, you're dead. I know you're up there, Marshal! Jake's head snapped. He pulled the rifle closer to his gut. Dooley, in a purple lightning flash, lifted his rifle in the air and rode his horse across the ledge. You're a dead man! After the next round of lightning, thunder merged with a quick bullet volley that chewed up the rock about 15 feet away. Jake sprinted through the downpour along the boulders. More shots hit the rocks above and he fought to keep his balance. Marshal, I'm gonna kill you! In the next lightning brightness, Dooley's army cap appeared just above the rocks ahead. Jake raised his gun, but he doubted whether he could kill Dooley with two bullets in a rainstorm. He waited until more lightning illuminated the landscape. He swung his gun toward Dooley near the boulders and squeezed the trigger. The lightning faded with the shot. Thunder rolled up the valley in the darkness. He waited again. With each successive lightning burst, Jake searched for the lieutenant. Not until Dooley's riderless husk galloped aimlessly along the slope did he raise his head above the rock. He breathed quickly. Just like the war, his stomach wrenched with the persistent fear of death. With the rifle nestled against his chest, he was sure he had killed Dooley. He clawed along the rocks. The dense black clouds blurred above him as the thunder persisted. John Rheingold's blue eyes, like a chilling desert night breeze, coalesced in his thoughts. Darkness and settling cold air grabbed him as he crawled under the ledge. Huge bolts cut the clouds and thunder again boomed up the valley. He pressed his boot against several smaller loose rocks and lost his footing. His shoulder hit the rocks and pushed the air from his lungs. He tumbled over the talus below and his skull smacked against a lower slab. The rain sheets riddled his body as he whipped over and finally landed at the edge of a huge water runoff between the slopes. He choked as the water encircled his scraped face. His bruised ribs throbbed as he used all his remaining strength to roll back on the dirt, but his boots were too close to the swift running water. He half heard the thunder as the lightning brightened, but he could not move his battered body. Chapter 11, Brentson, Nevada June 19, 1882, 8.09 p.m. Coltrane looped his hitch around the telegraph office post. He had just fought a steady rain from the Turner Ranch, not the Brinson. Josephine Turner and the servants confirmed Ben Wiggins' suspicion about the Turner's trip. She insisted that the three boys and Sam had headed east to purchase cattle near Tucson. They would be gone for a month. Coltrane stepped under the roof supports and wiped his boots on the rough edges of the boardwalk slats. He shook the water off his poncho and opened the telegraph office door. The glass rattled when he shut the door and he brushed off the water beads. Andy Bisbane's chair creaked as he peered over the oil lamp flame. Wires are still down and rain ain't helping. Oh, come on, how can the wires still be down? The warm, dry air soothed Coltrane's chilled body. Maybe we need to ride to Carson City. This town is isolated, and I don't like it. It is. 
Andy lowered the papers in his hand as the rain pitter-pattered against the darkened window glass. Levi's got men riding the line, but we can't find nobody. You want some coffee, Jim? Yeah, I just rode out from the turnip place. I could use hot coffee. Andy stepped to the cast-iron stove, grabbed the brown pot, and poured the thick black liquid into a blue metal cup. Coltrane rubbed his hands together. He looked into Andy's azure eyes as he sipped the coffee. We really need to wire the overland and or anyone else in Carson City. I'm having breakfast with Rheingold. Mr. Rheingold, to me, appears to be more than just a railroad man. Well, Rheingold was in here last night. The steam flitted across his face. What did he want? asked Coltrane. Oh, he pounds on the door. I was sleeping. The hot coffee trickled down Coltrane's throat. What time was that? Hell, past midnight, Jim. He wants to know if the wires were still down. Fine thing to be asking me after midnight. Late. Real late. Coltrane sidestepped to the window and stared through the rain-smeared glass. He was in the Arroyo playing cards earlier. He's good. Damn good. I'm beginning to wonder about him. Jim, I asked Rheingold some questions about Bud Kendall and Warren Oates. They come down the line every now and then. Oh, yeah? From the Overland Railroad? Rheingold doesn't know either, man. You'd think he would if he was vice president of the line. What the hell's going on here? Coltrane lifted the mug and finished the coffee. Thanks for the coffee, Andrew. Be careful, Jim. Coltrane nodded and grasped the doorknob. I'm going to have a little talk right now with Mr. Rheingold back at the hotel. Good idea. Coltrane opened the door and the damp air slammed his face. He stepped from the boardwalk and unhitched his horse. As the rain tapered down his cheeks, clouds raced across the desert, producing a luminescent glow over the town. He shielded his arm into the storm as he led the horse into a small barn behind the hotel. Inside, one of his men dried the horse as Coltrane entered the hotel through the rear stairway. He removed his dripping coat once he was in the lobby. The fire cracked from the side wood stove as he hung the coat and hat on the brass rack. He had Buford leave a message for Rheingold to meet him right now. Then he headed for the dining room and pulled back the chair at his corner table along the rain-dotted windows. He ordered coffee, ham, and eggs and picked up a folded Carson City newspaper. Buford appeared in the doorway a few minutes later. Coltrane looked up as the clerk flew across the room. Well, what did he say, Buford? Well, it's hard to say. What do you mean? Asked Coltrane as they served him coffee. Well, Rheingold ain't in his room. He was never in his room, Mr. Coltrane. The bed's not slept in and the luggage is gone. Hell, that's mighty strange, he said, setting down the paper. I don't like this. I don't like the Turners all being out of town, either. Elby tripped through the lobby doors and traipsed mud across the dining room floorboards. They got him! They got him! Well, they got who? asked Coltrane, looking at the mud trail. Gene Hawkins! Dead! 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 Sawtooth beat him to death! Slow down, Elby, said Coltrane as he stood. Why did he kill Gene Hawkins? Hawkins was cutting them damn wires! It was Hawkins! Levi Hansen, his tan coat beaded with water, waddled into the dining room. The smooth-skinned kid took off his hat, and his dark hair shook around his neck. Mr. Coltrane? Coltrane set down his paper. Levi, what's this about Hawkins? Dead. He pulled a gun on Sawtooth, and he shot Sawtooth when Sawtooth went to grab the gun. His hands was covered with creosote from them poles. Sawtooth kicked him and hit him until he said who sent him out here to cut them wires. Who sent Hawkins? asked Coltrane. Rody Turner. God damn those Turners. 
Coltrane kept thinking about Junior Turner buying the mule harnesses in the grain. Where's Rheingold, Buford? Where is he right now? Levi pointed at Coltrane. I heard he just won big at the Arroyo. Seems like he never went up to his room last night and his luggage is gone, said Coltrane. Maybe beat the wrong man at cards. Get word around town if anyone has seen Rheingold or saw him leave town. We need to know about it. Coltrane looked into Levi's blue eyes. I'm more concerned about Hawkins and the Turners. Hawkins is a Turner man, cried Elby. Cash in his pockets. He did it. He did it. Is the line operational now? Huh? asked Elby, eyeing Coltrane's ham and eggs as it was set on the table. Well, I guess so, said Elby. You want your meal? Yes, I want my meal said Coltrane, sipping on the coffee. Levi, make sure Andy gets a wire out to the Overland. We need the Pinkerton man down here now. Tell him Jake and Soaring Bird attract the silver south, and somebody has to find Rheingold. If I find Rheingold, will you buy me a meal? asked Albie, smacking his wide lips under his bristly beard. You find Rheingold, and I'll buy you meals every night here for a full year. Year? Year? You heard him, Levi. One year! One year! Tell him about the Danforth load in Bancor Pass. Tell him! Tell him! Elby hobbled out of the dining room, and Levi held his gun handles as he furrowed his brow. This ain't looking good, Mr. Coltrane. Coltrane motioned to one of his workers and ordered him to clean up Elby's muddy mess off the floor. He rolled his eyes and then cut into his ham. Levi, I think we're going to need to take a trip out to that wreck when the canyon storm breaks. Someone may have gone to a lot of trouble to get Jake out of town. I mean, while they got the jump on all of us. Exactly right. We've been talking about the silver. Ain't a man in town that doesn't think it was stolen. I got my theories, said Levi, with the help of Albie. Albie, you're losing your credibility, Levi. No, sir. Elby's been mining the Sierras for years. Since 49, he was telling me about a railroad spur line west of Bancor Pass. If you bring the silver up there, you can ride the mountains right along the Bancor Trail. The line goes straight down past Stockton, into the valley, to San Francisco. Coltrane sat down his fork and thought, Maybe the Turners took that silver to Arizona Territory from Sororo. Maybe Jake went south when he should have gone northwest. Coltrane positioned his shiny brown boots on the hotel boardwalk's wet boards. Water cascaded off the roof as a team of horses snorting foggy breaths trudged through the mud. They towed a freshly honed, rain-soaked pine box darkened by the rain. The larger rear wheels spun the mud at the turn toward the undertaker's building near the whitewashed church. Coltrane dipped his shoulder to the rain again and splashed through the mud to the corner telegraph office. Was Sam Turner risking everything for the silver? His ranch brought him great wealth and he was one of the largest landowners in Nevada. Talk abounded about him running for governor. Yet Turner and his boys left town exactly when the silver went missing, and a Turner man had kept the town isolated by cutting the telegraph wires. Coltrane opened the telegraph office door. Andy tapped the key wildly as the rain descended the pane windows up front. He raised his index finger and kept tapping. When he finally stood, a thin, sweaty glaze covered his reddened face. And he spoke in a lower voice. Jim, the railroad, they, they never knew the silver was missing. Neither did the Army at Fort Churchill. They're waiting for it in Carson City. They've been trying to contact us for a day and a half. What? I've wired Omaha and 
Carson City. They're all wild. The silver was supposed to be in Carson City yesterday afternoon. Rheingold said the railroad sent him. Rheingold is a liar, said Andy. Coltrane sat at the chair in front of the stove. Jake was right. John Rheingold's being out here was way too convenient. And that train, it had no passengers. The whole bunch of them, the soldiers, the engineer, wheel, all of them were lying. Coltrane nodded, stalling. Sending Jake south, of course, it all makes sense now. Then the line went out again. Another turn of lackey. Elby passed the outside window as he ran up the boardwalk. He kicked open the door and, and it hit the front window casing. Back on the range, near the wreck. Newton and the others were riding back into town. Mass grave, just like Cold Harbor. Somebody killed them soldiers from the train. Newton counted 18 bodies. Jesus God Almighty. Coltrane peered out the foggy window as more darkness settled over the town. We've all been duped. We gotta do something, Jim, shouted Albie. Gotta do something. Find Jake. Find Jake. They're sending federal troops out here from Fort Churchill. Still, that'll take a day and a half. More time for Rheingold and the others to get away. Wherever they went. Chapter 12. Brinson, Nevada. June 20th, 1882. 4.15 p.m. The pain riddled Jake's head and ribs as the water surge dragged him forward. He fought the current as he moved toward a runoff a few dozen yards ahead. Soaring Bird, trailed by Menowa, brought his pinto through the fog. His Shoshone friend leaped off his horse and with a coiled lariat in hand ran along the torrent. Jake tumbled over, coughing and choking as he gasped for air. He feared he would not reach the slope. In a sweeping motion, Soaring Bird unfurled the rope in the gray rain, and it splashed somewhere back in the water. Quickly, the Indian retracted the line. Jake swam through the rippling current. His legs knotted over his head until he resurfaced. Soaring Bird again hurled the rope. The line hit Jake's fingers, but he clamped his right hand over the loop. His body careened obliquely as Soaring Bird anchored the rope on his horse. Jake moved knees up, scraping the sharp, rocky bottom as the horse trudged up the incline and pulled him onto the loose sand. Me pride! The rain hit his face. Ribs! I busted my ribs! Head cut! Soaring Bird lifted Jake under the arms and dragged him up the talus. Jake caught his breath each time the Indian paused. When they were back under the ledge, Jake rested his head against the solid rock. Water drained over the edge. You were granted life, McBride. You saved my life, my friend. Soaring Bird checked the makeshift bandage wrapped tightly around Jake's ribs. The storm had passed and the thick clouds had brightened. When the soldiers threatened my people in Duck Valley, you wired the agent Palmer. Them soldiers weren't under official orders. Menowar leaned under the ledge, and McBride rubbed his snout. You're damn lucky that Dooley didn't shoot you. I found the abandoned wagons near Badwater, McBride. We were deceived. Jake, groggy, his eyes heavy, nodded. I know. They dumped them wagons, three of them, in Yubahibi. Dooley, Dooley, he tried to kill me. The cavalry soldier? Jake shook his head. He weren't no soldier, and he's dead somewhere out there. He worked for John Rheingold. Rheingold. 
Ryan Gold ain't Ryan Gold. He don't work for the Overland. I just don't know who the hell he is. Of course, Soaring Bird gazed through the overflowing water to the downward slope. And the silver, not in the canyon. We should not have allowed ourselves to be fooled. Don't matter now. We need to get back to Brinson, the doctor, Talmadge. He should help you. Jake shook his head. No, no. I'm going to get this man, Rheingold. I, I don't even care about the silver. This man made a fool out of me. I'm going to kill him. The crisp topaz sun now shone clearly through the afternoon desert clouds outside the ledge. Shadows fell. Don't really feel that bad. He nibbled on a piece of smoked meat and stared at the gooey mess Soaring Bird had removed from his pouch. What the hell is that? Wannapit and Sanapin. Yeah, so what? Soaring Bird smeared the mixture on the open cuts on Jake's arms and face. It is the pitch from cedar. It will soothe. You're right. Don't sting no more. You need rest. Soaring Bird picked up Jake's vest and blue jersey. No rest. I'm gonna get that son of a bitch. Jake scanned the slope for Dooley's body. The flood-washed arroyo was now only a trickle after the storm. He reached for his shirt and held up the scuff marks across the shirt wrinkles. You know what the hell this is? I don't understand. Jake took the shirt and lifted the marks to Soaring Bird's nose. Creosote. You found creosote on the Dunbar porch. Well, the only time I had this shirt off was back in town when I was in the hotel with Grayson Woman. Jake studied the marks again. Why would she kill Dunbar? I don't know. Jake gripped his shirt. All pleasurable thoughts of Pan Grayson now merged into anger. He shook his head and slowly lifted his arm into the shirt. Soaring Bird tried to help, but Jake waved him back and brought his other hand through the sleeve. He buttoned the shirt and struggled to his feet. The Indian grasped his hand and pulled him outside. Jake squinted in the bright afternoon sun near the darkening Panamint peaks to the south. She was working for the Turners. Do you think the Turners had anything to do with the missing silver? Turner has much land. Jake tucked in his shirt. His tender lower ribs hurt, but he knew he could ride. Sam's got big ambitions. Jake took a few steps away from the ledge into the clear open air. I intend to track John Rheingold down. Soaring Bird gazed skyward to the opening sky. This is the land of the Panamints. There are stories on the origin of our people here. Jake rested on the rock again. I never understood them stories. All our stories have meaning, McBride. Meaning for a greater understanding of life. Even for this moment. What is the origin of your people? Soaring Bird smiled and sat between Jake and the sun. Water was all about the earth. Reckon that's pretty much true right here. The water dried up quickly. Soaring Bird gazed into the linear sun rays from the cloud breaks near the Panamets. At this epoch, the birds, even the animals, were human beings. He pointed toward the deep blue mountains. Coyote journeyed along the Panamint Mountains. There appeared a beautiful woman who had white, white skin. Pabin Poseitz, she was called. Coyote snuck behind her as she carried a water vessel. Finally, he overtook her and said he wanted water. Some distance away was the place where she could quench his thirst. 
She instructed him to meet her there. Maybe it was bad water in Death Valley. Soaring Bird continued to look into the sun and clouds. Coyote walked to the given place, but the girl again directed him yet to another more distant place. Safely she hurried home by tricking Coyote this way. Coyote went to some water and started to drink near the house where she lived with her mother. While he was drinking, the girl attempted to hit him many times, but Coyote was quick and she missed. She sent Coyote into the opening house. Inside he found bows and arrows on the walls. When the sun had left and night had fallen, the girl prevented Coyote's manifestations toward her. When the sun broke through, Coyote wanted to know the true owners of the bows and arrows. The mother had Coyote take the bows and arrows to hunt some ducks. Coyote returned later with fish and ducks he had killed. In the evening they ate some food, but Coyote later went after the girl and the woman. The girl's stomach had grown by morning and she gave birth. Her children were placed in a large water basket container. They are your babies, said the girl. You will bring the babies in the water basket. They will cry for water, but you must hesitate with water and opening or all the babies will leave. Later, the babies cried for water as Coyote carried the heavy container. Coyote opened the top to pour in water. Out came the babies, all of them. They went in all directions. The males fought with bows and arrows. These people from the basket became our Indian tribes. Soaringbird turned from the sun and looked down to Jake. Well, that's as good an explanation as I've ever heard, said Jake. I will not refer to his carnal advance, McBride. I will only say the actions of men have unintended consequences. It is said the people knew how to write before Coyote opened the jug. The same may be true for your Mr. Rheingold. His want has led to things he had not intended. How do you know this? asked Jake. It is true for all of us. Over a mile away, they saw the buzzards circling in the brightening skies. Dooley must be down there. We gotta bury his body. That would be the proper thing to do. Jake peered down the salty brown slope as he stepped up to Menowa. He raised his foot in the stirrups. Pain spread across his ribs as he hoisted himself into the saddle. Maybe he had just bruised his bones. Soaring Bird climbed onto his pony and started down the talus. Jake returned in his mind to the numerous corpse-strewn battlefields back east. He grabbed the Remington from his pack and fired twice at the vultures sweeping around the burgeoning blue sky. The noise was enough to send the birds flapping toward the folded brown mountains to the east, but the lure of the flesh kept him hovering at a distance. He returned the rifle to his side pack. Damn buzzards! Soaring Bird found a soft spot farther down the slope. Jake used his hands to push back the rocks. The Indian removed an old army-issue shovel from his pack and scooped the sand, hollowing out a grave for Dooley. Jake looked into his eyes. I'm gonna check his pockets. Soaringbird nodded and pushed back his dark hair off his shoulders as he continued hacking the ground. Jake lifted his bandana over his nose and mouth. He never could tolerate the stench of death. Dooley's mud-soaked blue uniform and hands blended into the desert floor. Jake's shot had impacted in the lower back, but the rain had doused the blood away. 
In Dooley's lower pockets, Jake found a few silver coins, which he left alone, and the hardened remains of a biscuit filled the side pocket. He ran his fingers along the lieutenant's stripes. Dooley's contorted lips were exactly like the soldiers he had seen gasping for air as they died after a battle. He unbuttoned the top pocket. Inside was a still soggy folded piece of paper. With his bandana over his nose, he walked away from the body and squatted in the sunlight. He carefully peeled back each moistened fold, revealing the smeared black ink of a hand-drawn map. In the lower right corner were the letters SC, inverted V-shaped mountains formed to the west of a sketch compass cross. A straight line extended through the mountains toward the south. Someone had written in Bancor Pass in darker ink. Jake held the moistened map. Soaring Bird leaned the shovel against his legs and furrowed his brow. Did you find something, McBride? Could be where they bring in the silver. The water-laden paper glowed tan in the sunlight. Look here, this has got to be it. If they could cross the Sierra to Bancor Ridge. There was a load ten years ago near Bancor Ridge. I ain't never been up there, but I heard Albie talk about a railroad trestle built to haul silver to San Francisco. Yes, the new, the nut gatherers harvest pinion nuts and pass behind that ridge. We have seen the trestle you speak of. It extends into the valley. Get that silver through the mountains and into the valley, and you've got it made. Rheingold must have contacts. He seems like a clever man. Damn right. I can see this in my head. Them bastards hid the silver in Sororo and then moved out after they sent us south. He thought he had me out of town before. I remember Rheingold being surprised when I showed up at the stage as he paraded around like somebody he ain't. He just made it seem like he had come in on the stage. And then he talks to Pam and gets me upstairs. She's working for him. That Dunbar killing. Dunbar was involved in this too. He had to be. And Pam gunned him down. When you're dead, you're dead. Soaring Bird held the edge of the map. If this is true, Rheingold is well into the Sierra by now. After we bury Dooley, we're heading north to Bancor Pass. The area you speak of, the high ground of Ponderosa and Juniper, it is some distance away. I'll get him. Soaring Bird nodded and gripped the shovel. I only hope we have the time, McBride. Chapter 13, Brenson, Nevada, June 20th, 1882. 5.15 p.m. Coltrane and most of the townsfolk gathered in front of the hotel as the evening stage from Carson City crossed the prairie. After the storm broke, he brought men out to Sororo Canyon to bury the soldiers' bodies. The rain had washed away all the wagon tracks, and he now feared Rheingold and the Turners had successfully moved the silver out of the area. With the Fort Churchill troops still days away, he realized Brinson provided perfect isolation for the heist. A team of six horses pulled the stage around the church. The driver yanked the reins, and Coltrane stepped off the boardwalk. He's all set! He's all set! Set him free! Set him free! Don't get ahead of yourself, Albie. Albie tucked a small flask in his pocket. Turners did it! That is unproved. All we know is the Turners could have been involved in transporting the silver. You ain't the marshal! Nothing could please me more, said Coltrane, as the mud-splattered stage came to a slow stop beyond the hotel. 
Coltrane waved to the driver and walked briskly to the coach door. A bald man in suspenders and a blue shirt leaned out the coach's sidelight window. Beard stubble coated his pudgy face. You Coltrane? I am. He moved his wide shoulders through the open coach door. Obert Bowers, I work for the Pinkertons. The Overland wants me to investigate your telegraph lines being down. I need to report on the shipment of silver due in Carson City yesterday. Damn silver is gone! It's gone! cackled Albie. Bowers' face fell flat. What the hell is he talking about the silver being gone? Well, he's right, said Coltrane. Damn it! We had 18 soldiers from Fort Huachuca. Bowers wiped his chin and shook his head. What the hell happened? They're dead! They're dead! Killed outside of town! Elby stood alongside him. See, it was like this. They blew up their tracks and said the Mexicans took the silver south. Marshal McBride went after them. Looks like a massacre, Mr. Bowers, said Coltrane. We're talking about the murder of U.S. soldiers. He had the tense look of a man angered yet disgusted with the turn of events. When we couldn't wire Brinson, I hopped the stage with the judge. This is a serious matter now. That silver was headed for the U.S. Mint. Not anymore! Not anymore! I tell you, they're heading to Bancor! Heading to Bancor! said Albie. Bowers turned to the coach. Come on, Judge, you want that meal or what? I do, answered the stiff voice inside. See the Mexicans! Mexicans? That is highly unlikely, said Bowers. Didn't you see the passengers in Carson City? asked Coltrane. Bowers folded his arms and stepped onto the boardwalk. Why would they load a train with silver and risk passengers? The soldiers would have guarded the silver. They said the passengers went on the wagons headed for Carson City. Bowers spread his lips and exhaled. Judge has to try, Dan Dalton, cried Albie. Well, this is unprecedented, said the white-haired, wrinkled Judge McKenzie, finally stepping outside. The judge wore a long, dark coat, black string tie, and a narrow collared shirt. Well, no wonder we couldn't wire Andy Bisbane. They all started into the hotel lobby. Bowers rubbed his pug nose as Albie squeezed between him and Coltrane. Coltrane smelled last night's liquor on Albie's breath. We found a Turner man, Judge. A Turner man, Mr. Pinkerton. Well, that's not surprising, said Bowers, trying to keep ahead of Elby. The judge straightened his back and stretched his arms. He had huge, milky veins in his large hands. Well, we had rain all the way. Just broke an hour ago. What's the story with Dalton? Dalton was going to be strung up till Jake stopped them Turner boys, yelled Elby. Maybe the law has finally caught up with Sam Turner, said the judge. He's been talking to people, important people, in Carson City about being governor. Coincidentally, that takes money. Coltrane tried to nudge Elby out of the way. The whiskey and body odor made him wince. Elby, why don't you tell Dalton that the judge is here? How much? How much will you give me? I'll give you a meal. Now go tell Dalton. Coltrane motioned Bowers and the judge toward the dining room. Please, gentlemen, I have hot meals waiting for you. Albie continued talking as he left the hotel. Don't forget about me! Well, how could I forget? Asked Coltrane, and they all laughed and stepped into the lobby. 
He brought them directly into the dining room and sat them at his private table. So Jake went south, asked Mackenzie, taking off his coat. He and S. Shoshone had been gone for two days, said Coltrane. Shoshone's are supposed to be at Duck Valley and in Ruby Valley, said Bowers, pulling up the chair. Well, the Shoshone saw the train wreck, but the soldiers kept them back, said Coltrane. He went on to describe a chronology of events up to Rheingold's winning the poker game at the Arroyo last night. Bowers drank some water from a large glass and cleared his throat. Who the hell is Rheingold? Supposedly sent by the Overland to investigate the derailment, answered Coltrane. Bowers' face tightened. Gentlemen, we've been had. What did this man look like? Light brown hair, blue eyes, around six feet, well-dressed. Probably an act. Obviously, they've headed out of this area. Levi Hansen says you can go direct but still hide in the mountains, said Coltrane. I talked to Ben Wiggins at the general store. Sam Turner's son, Jr. Bought a mule harness, bridles, and loaded up with supplies to cross some mountain. Looks like they did travel to the mountains, said Bowers. If they went south, the marshal and the Indian will spot them. North, they'd be in the open prairie. Or we or anyone on the stage route would have seen them. Well, that includes the eastern prairie, too, said Mackenzie, gulping his whiskey in a fluted glass. If you've got people waiting for you there in the San Joaquin Valley, you can get that silver anywhere. We're heading west in the morning, early. We need to wire Stockton and Fresno City. Get people heading east to Bancor Pass. It's Rheingold that bothers me. I want to know who the hell he really is. Well, I want to know how he planned it, said Mackenzie. I'm sworn to uphold the law, but Bart, this was brilliant, shutting down the town, blowing up the tracks at the right time, and getting the silver out. Bowers stood and banged his fist on the table. Well, the son of a bitch moved fast and got the silver out ahead of everyone else, and apparently had enough resources to massacre the soldiers. I'm going to wire San Francisco. I want to get wanted posted out on Rheingold right now. Well, that's all well and good, Bart, but we need a posse to find that silver, said the judge. Bowers tightened his brow. Even if they left days ago, the mules can't move that fast. The terrain is rough. I need someone who knows the Sierra Nevada Valley. I knows that area like the back of my hand, said Elby just outside the door. The men looked at each other. Levi Hanson, he's a mountain man. Well, he lived up there for a while, said Coltrane. He's no mountain man, Albie. You go live in the mountains, you sure as hell gonna be a mountain man. Get over to Dalton, will you, Albie? yelled Bowers. I'm going, I'm going. Coltrane rolled his eyes and leaned toward Bowers. But if you're right, if they reach the valley, they can get the silver eventually to San Francisco, put it on a ship and make their money or hide it. I'm with you, we leave at sunrise. I've got a dozen men who will track that silver. Horses and guns are at the ready. Finding that trail will be the hard part after the storm. But Levi can get us through. Soldiers from Fort Churchill will be here in a few days, said Bowers. But that doesn't help us right now. I'm going to wire the army. I have a bad feeling about this, gentlemen. There's going to be trouble. These men aren't going to easily give up that silver. Chapter 14, Brinson, Nevada June 21st, 1882, 8.29 a.m. The 15-man posse thundered across the sagebrush flats as a sunrise flared over the eastern prairie. 
Coltrane rode next to Bowers. By mid-morning, they ascended the rising evergreen hills at the base of the Sierra above Brinson. The storm had smoothed the slopes clear of any tracks. Bowers told everyone he wanted to find evidence of Rheingold's people moving west along the Bancor Trail. Levi Hansen pointed his finger and panned across the forested hills to the west. My father and me, we tracked game here since I was a boy. I figured the valley and the railroad trestle at Bancor Pass is still another 60 miles. Let me make this clear to everyone here, said Bowers. This is not going to be easy, and apprehending Rheingold will be impossible if they reach the spur line from the Danforth load at Bancor Pass. We can't keep pace with the train heading down into the valley. Just hours ago, Bowers instructed Andy Bisbane, once the wires were connected, to contact the Overland, the Pinkerton office in San Francisco, and the U.S. Mint in Carson City about the missing silver and John Rheingold. In that same telegram, he had Andy lay out the posse's plan. The actions would cut off Rheingold should he attempt to reach San Francisco. At mid-afternoon, the men stopped near a rapidly moving mountain stream under the scraggly juniper trees and the weathered gray rocks. Coltrane cupped his hand above his eyes and surveyed the straight rows of Ponderosa and Jeffrey Pines atop the silhouetted peaks under the cloudless skies. Several horses drank from the stream. To his right, Bowers leaned against the rocks and chomped on a fat cigar. He glanced at Coltrane, but spoke to the white-haired Mackenzie. We're not moving as fast as we could. I'm afraid that railroad line is going to be our death now. Damn, this man is very clever. Perfect planning, quick movement, and execution. Sounds like you admire what he did, Bart, said Mackenzie. I'm just telling you, Judge, the damn thing was planned with perfect timing in an isolated area. Somehow Rheingold became aware of that silver shipment on that train said Mackenzie. But where? barked Bowers. I need scouts up ahead. We have to know how close they are to that spur line. If we delay them, even with a few men, my office will send people up there once the telegraph operator is able to send my wires. Albie, a silver flask in his hand, yelled out from the rocks. I say we take the Lawson cutoff! Take him by surprise! Lawson Cutoff, asked Bowers. What the hell is that? North! A few men could make it! Go north, go south, and Rheingold is gone. I'll go ahead. I, I know that area, said Levi. It's slower travel, but a shorter distance. We could find them before they hit the spur. Coltrane wondered if Levi's youth made him more impulsive than smart. Maybe Jake put too much confidence in him. Rheingold will be well-armed. Levi glanced at Coltrane. Jim, we need to move or he'll get that silver away. Levi, fighting these men will be dangerous. Well, nobody's asking for a fight, said Bowers. Levi, take three men with you. We'll trail behind. If you spot them, send somebody back here. You should shadow them. Well, that's all well and good, said Coltrane. But none of us have taken this trail to Bancor Pass. We risk not getting there. I'll draw it out for you, said Levi. You have to head south for a while and then due west to Bancor Pass. Draw it out, said Bowers, looking around. Somebody get this man a piece of paper. 
Over here, said the judge. He reached into one of his saddlebags and pulled out a notebook with a green lead pencil. Levi moved the pencil about the page. Bowers puffed on the cigar and paced around the juniper. Levi held up the page. Don't head west at these peaks. You'll recognize the long, jagged peaks. No trees. They look like ram horns. Your head tells you to head west, but don't. The trail ends 15 miles north of where you want to be. Take this trail at the peaks. Head due south for at least one day. You'll see Bancor Pass to the west. It's a steep climb, but the spur line swings down out of the woods. Then the highest railroad trestle you ever seen in your life brings that line into the valley. You got two days traveling time at a steady pace. He ripped the sheet from Mackenzie's notebook. Good. You select your men for the loss and cutoff, said Bowers, taking the paper. We can't waste any more time with these bastards. I will state for the record that we are taking a risk. Well, sometimes you have to take risks, Coltrane, said Bowers, or you get left in the dust. Levi turned slowly. If I spent my time waiting for everybody to arrive, Mr. Coltrane, I would have been dead a long time ago. He walked down to the men eating lunch on the rocks above the stream. He conned Pete Crimmins and Hank Nevins, men his age. Coltrane shook his head as he grabbed Bowers' wrist. This is a mistake. He's just a kid. Sometimes a kid has to become a man. Bowers looked angry as he squinted over Coltrane's shoulder. Albie had mounted his horse and rode around with his guns raised in the air. Well, what the hell is that crazy old man doing now? Coltrane turned as Albie brought a short-haired horse with crooked legs toward Levi. We'll get him, Levi! We'll get him! Bowers stomped across the rocks and drew his guns. You stupid son of a bitch! You talking to me? asked Albie. The horse... Eyes open wide as if he were spooked at a fire, shuffled in the dirt. Bowers then swung a rifle at Elby. Well, I don't see any other stupid son of a bitch around. Elby glanced around the trail. I was just gonna help him. Put those guns away, you jughead. You wanna help them? You'll stay back here. I don't want Rheingold to know we're on to them. That's the surest way to get into a fight and get everybody killed. I say, fight him, fight him, fight him now. And I say, if you don't get off that half-breed horse, I'll shoot you in the arse myself. Well, damn, said Albie, looking at his posterior. And your horse, too. Man wants to help, and they spit his eye, Willie. Albie slid down the back of the horse, but the horse bucked and nearly kicked him as he jumped. He held his green-brim hat as he backed away and put away his guns. Mackenzie chuckled and pinched the bridge of his nose. Man just wants to help, Bart. Don't you start, Judge. He marched over to Levi and the other two men, now on horses and preparing to head higher into the Sierra. Give me an estimate on all this, Levi. Well, if they left Sororo yesterday, we should be able to catch them before they reach the spur line. They just can't move all that silver all that fast. I think you'd be less than a day behind them. You could continue this pace, and at night you might catch them. Good, I don't know how long we can go at this pace. This isn't the best trail. Yeah, but they got them mules and silver bogging them down. True. He put his hand on Levi's shoulder. Everything depends on you, son. I, I won't let you down, Mr. Bowers. I know you won't, he said as he shook Levi's hand. The three men started up the ridge trail on their horses and soon disappeared between the rocky pine ledges. Bowers threw his cigar into the stream. 
Albie mumbled something but hid behind the junipers when Bowers passed. Bowers grinned and pretended to move toward the sinewy tree. Albie scuttled back. He's harmless, said Mackenzie back at the horses. Harmless as a cyclone in an outhouse. We should have left him back in Brinson. Coltrane, already on his horse, smiled. Then you might not have nothing to do along the way, Bart. Bowers put his boot in the metal stirrup and flung his stocky body into the saddle. He held the horn and leaned toward Coltrane. I'll tell you, when I said I'll shoot him in the arse, I will. Chapter 15, Bancor Pass, Nevada, June 21st, 1882, 2.40 p.m. Johnny stood upright and squinted. The tapering mule train stretched like a sidewinder along the Rocky Mountain Trail. The Turnus had orchestrated the movement of silver so well. Compensation was their reward, but he alone had planned it, and he alone suffered any risk. The risk was almost as exhilarating as the actual execution of the plan. Getting McBride heading south was part of that risk, and that had freed him and the Turnus to haul their silver in the mule train from the cave in Sororo Canyon. He still feared getting caught. In all his days in Texas and all the shootouts down south, nothing had scared him and thrilled him like this operation. George Glidden, his faded cavalry uniform soiled and dusty, started up the slope on his horse. Johnny cupped his hand. Any sign of Dooley? Dooley ain't coming back. I'm worried, Johnny. You should have just killed McBride before Dunbar blew up the train. Who would have known McBride would come back into town? I thought we had him all set up. Bad luck he come back, and Dalton borrowing that saw. Turner's almost had Dunbar strung up set for McBride again. World isn't perfect, George. You think all the time we rustled that everything went the way we wanted it to? Ever wonder how I came up with this plan? Dunbar was a Confederate partisan ranger under Colonel Mosby. You know who he was? Nope. Ever hear of the Greenback Raid? No, sir. I heard the story from an old Reb in Galeyville. Mosby and 84 Rangers rode and derailed a Union Express and netted 175,000 in Union Greenbacks that were on the way to General Sheridan. Ah, now I see. The hell you do. I asked him if he still knew of any other rebels. Dunbar was one of those men with the 43rd Cavalry Battalion. The what? Mosby's Rangers. More than 175,000 here, Johnny. Damn right, George. Damn right. Johnny nodded as he studied the forested ridges leading toward Bancor Pass. Soon he would reach the spur line and Wheel would bring the small train to McGuire and his men in the valley. Let's just hope Dooley killed McBride and that Indian like he was supposed to. Yes, sir. Men wandered about the mules and stopped like statues on the trail. Mules have done well. Mules shouldn't do the heavy freight until they're five years old. You know the old saying? Well, what's that? asked Johnny. God made mules for a purpose. Well, I like this purpose. They used to haul in borax at ten cents a pound. That son of a bitch at Calico Station changed the agreement. Four fifty a mule. We made the deal for three fifty at Furnace Creek. Doesn't matter. 
The value of the silver surpasses anything we lost. Come on, George. Glidden pushed his lips together, his salty mustache joining his beard. You're going to be a rich man, John. Maybe. I take nothing for granted. He counted the mules again. Tell Rody to get the mules going. Sure as hell, word's gotten out in Brinson. The Army, the railroad, everyone in Nevada is going to be on our asses real soon. We need to get that silver to the spur line. No more stopping. Yes, sir, said Glidden. You know what you're doing. You always have. Nothing will get in my way. This will make all those stagecoach jobs penny-any, my friend. Glidden smiled. You have a devious mind, John. When I heard about the train hauling silver, I thought about Mosby. I began asking myself why I was wasting my time with card games and Wells Fargo boxes on stage lines. I was sick and tired of gunfights and killing. And being blamed for killing, I never did. This was one hell of an opportunity to have people like McBride or Dunbar ruin it. Johnny stroked his chin and a smile climbed up his face when he thought about how close he was to getting the silver to McGuire and out to the bay. He first met McGuire in the piñata camp where McGuire worked melding silver into pure bars. McGuire had cheated him so well at stud poker that Johnny bought him drinks all night. He had his contacts on the San Francisco waterfront. McGuire could easily get the silver smelted in San Francisco and then loaded on a vessel out of the country. Just four months ago, he sat on his horse up the ridge overlooking the Silver Hill Mine in Arizona. The men trucked the rock out of the mines with horse-drawn carts. He watched the mules move the raw ore to the smelting houses to the north. The railroad spur line was set up to bring the bars to the main overland line. A few more card games with the railroad men in the saloons around the smelters gave him the information he needed. When he forgave their debts, they told him about the overland train with 18 army men leaving the Spur Junction on June 11th. Johnny had traveled the stage to his family in San Jose a few times. A few years back, he had stopped at all the small towns along the way through Nevada. He had spent a day and a half in Brinson, when they had to repair busted-up wheels on the coach. Brinson's hotel was clean, with good meals. The saloon had interesting card games and free-flowing whiskey. The town was wedged between the Sierras, the Prairie, and a canyon that bordered Death Valley to the south. A derailed train and snipped telegraph wires would leave the silver vulnerable. He needed killers in the lurch, men he could trust to gun down the army men and then hide the silver bars in the canyon. Sam Turner, according to McGuire, wanted to be governor of Nevada but lacked the resources. Sam had land and the cattle, but not enough money. Johnny easily brought Sam and his boys into the plan. He was not sure whether he needed to kill the local marshal, Tuckerman. One of the Turner boys killed the marshal too early, allowing time for McBride to come down from Elko. With his plan set, Johnny needed to lure McBride out of town. He elaborated on a story about a Mexican bandito, Estrada, stealing silver. With the soldiers and the overland people dead, no one would question the story of banditos bringing the silver south in wagons. Scott Dooley and George Glidden would convince McBride that the Mexicans had fled with the silver. Later, Wheel and McAllister would corroborate the tale. 
Johnny had known most of them since Texas and trusted them, especially with payment in silver. Quickness was essential. Dooley's outlaws would load the silver bars in wagons, bring the silver south into Sororo Canyon, and store the bars in the side caves. He would procure mules from Death Valley. Once packed, the mules would exit Sororo up a little-used trail and head for the Sierra. Having Dunbar dynamite the tracks at the designated time on the open prairie cinched it. Turner's men would cut the telegraph wires to the remote towns long enough to haul the silver north. The trick was getting the silver into the Sierra and to the railroad trestle McGuire told him about. The long trestle not too far up ahead extended from the depleted Danforth load at Bancor Ridge. Once on that train, he would be, as Sam Turner kept repeating, set for life. Johnny, still convinced they would reach the spur line train ahead of any Pinkerton detectives of the army, lit a stogie. As he moved into the mountain shadows behind the mule train, he wondered if McBride had found the sandbag wagons Rody Turner had suggested sending south. Or was McBride even alive? Rody yelled at the mule drivers as if he were on a cattle drive, shouting to the mountain air. Johnny shook his head and focused on the mule train. As he brought his horse slowly on ground level, he pictured walking the docks along San Francisco Bay with McGuire back in March. The masts of a thousand sailing vessels packed the bay. When he left for Arizona, after Deputy Hagen Kern was gunned down outside of Rhyolite City, he convinced himself to a certainty that his plan would work. He told every participant that if they talked, he would personally gun them down, just like Hagen. Several men had gathered around a mule off the trail on the mountain. They checked the mule's leg as Rody Turner raced up the trail on his horse and yelled as he leaped to the ground. What's the matter, Rody? This mule's having trouble getting to Bancor. I ain't got time to slow down. We gotta move and move now. Rody took out a long-handled Smith & Wesson. Johnny cupped his hands. Hey, Rody! Hey, Rody! Hold it! Rody turned. He had the annoying habit of chewing the inside of his mouth. We got a useless mule here, Johnny! Johnny dismounted and immediately scanned the packs containing the silver. One man had two of the shiny bars in his hands. I want you men to know that you're being watched and every bar has been accounted for. There will be a count once we reach the spur line. Well, that's irrelevant, said Rody, cocking the trigger. We got a useless mule here. Well, you can't just shoot the animals, said Johnny. Move the silver to another mule. Spread it out. Well, that's what I intend to do. Rody aimed the gun and a single shot reverberated down the wooded slope as Rody grabbed his arm. Johnny moved behind his cold smoking barrel. You want to challenge me, Rody? Rody stared at the colt. You're, you're one fast bastard. You best not shoot any more innocent animals, Rody, or I'll kill you. But that mule, this is my operation, and you work for me. Johnny carefully watched Rody's hand on the gun handle. Up the trail, men whistled and catcalls echoed through the woods. Johnny turned in the saddle and slowed the horse. Midway up a rock escarpment, Pam Grayson rode swiftly between the trees. Johnny turned his horse. 
Men clapped and called out vulgarities as she galloped to the front of the mule train. Johnny, we got trouble. I told you to meet me in San Francisco, Pam. Hanson from Brinson and the other two men, they're following the trail. Well, that didn't take long, said Johnny. Do you know what this means? It means they're on to us. I cut the wires three more times, but they got them repaired. Damn right they will. Where's Sam? He peered down the line of mules. Sam rode forward along the rocks with his boys. Pam held her gun. I want my cut now. Two bars. You promised me two silver bars. You keep your damn mouth shut or you get nothing. Who else is out there? I didn't see nothing. Only three men. I didn't recognize the other two. Levi, he knows these hills. Pam tightened her brow. Johnny had never seen her scared. There's got to be more after us, Johnny. Johnny lit a stogie and threw the wooden match down the slope. He rode over to Sam and his boys. Sam's icy blue eyes reflected the same pervasive fear spreading through the mule train. Well, what the hell is wrong? he asked. Pam tells me we're being trailed. Well, ain't that just sweet, said Rody, looking at his brothers. He was still holding his arm. You want us to take care of him, Pa? asked Mike Turner. How many men? asked Sam. Johnny spoke quickly. Three men, a man from Brinson, Levi Hansen, and... Oh, Levi! said Rody, grinning as if he had a fish on the line. Levi's a McBride man. Now he's a dead man. I'll take care of him for you. Do what you have to do, Rody, said Johnny. I have to get to the trestle. I will never get that silver to San Francisco. Sam pressed his lips and nodded. Get him, boys. Hee-haw! Rody lifted his hat off his matted hair. He spun his Smith & Wesson in his hand and then held it out like an offering toward Johnny. I'll show you shooting. Johnny said nothing and brought his horse around to Pam. As Rody headed to the front of the mule train, Johnny looked into her glowing green eyes. You ride up front with me. You ain't as confident now, are you, Johnny? asked Pam. It's all real simple when you're sitting in the Oriental Saloon planning the perfect way to be set for life. Plans go awry. He puffed on the stogie, clenched in his teeth. I'm giving you another silver bar. You are? Yes. If you keep your hand on that gun of yours and your eyes on Rody and the rest of those other bastards. If he makes any move or any of his brothers make a move toward me. What about the old man? Johnny squinted and nodded. I may kill a lot of them myself. Then you get me more bars, a small price to pay. <laughs> she had flawless skin and symmetrical eyes, a small nose, and her lips were aligned perfectly. For someone so beautiful, you are so deadly. Her eyes were luminescent in the sunshine. Nature makes flowers in her own way. I'll tell you again, if Rody makes a move, kill him. We'll kill him all if we have to. He crunched his teeth hard enough to cut the stogie. Nothing's gonna stop me from getting the silver down to the bay. Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. A flash flood is not pretty out west. Fortunately, the flash flood that swept my van and trailer did not have the ferocity of the runaway stream that swept Jake off the rocks. Soaring bird saves Jake. Again, that constant of human nature on the good side, while the infamous George Glidden tries to kill Jake on the evil side. 
All of this as the silver moves into the Nevada hills, hauled by mules, with every participant in the journey willing to risk his life to steal just one of those bars. The temptation then and now is overwhelming. And that behavior comes down to a simple matter of good versus evil. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, it gets real dicey as the bars are loaded on the train for San Francisco. What Rheingold doesn't realize is that he's being trailed by Jake McBride. I'm Robert P. Fitton, heading for the Nevada Hills and the railroad train. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.